Good evening, and welcome to Whosoever's first teleseminar on spiritual self-defense, and I'd like to open our session in prayer. Wonderful and amazing God, we give you thanks and praise for this event. We give you thanks and praise for those who are participating in this event and for those who are listening to the recording of this event afterwards. We ask that you bless each one of them, dear God. We ask that the words that I say be your words and not my own, and that your wisdom comes through, and that you provide the answers that those who are listening to this teleseminar are seeking. Because, God, we are asking for your wisdom here and not my wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And just a short self-introduction. You've got uh, the booklet there uh, in front of you. I am a recovering Southern Baptist, uh, the last child of five to uh, Jack and Norma Shalou, who uh, uh, Jack was a Southern Baptist preacher, and that's where I um, <clears throat> came by my need for recovery. Uh, <laughs> but he was a wonderful man. He missed his uh, uh, calling as a stand-up comedian. Um, he was a very unorthodox preacher, and I sort of follow in his footsteps. Um, and I'm very uh, happy about that part. And um, I did go to seminary, so I know uh, one thing or two about the Bible. I went to the uh, Candler School of Theology at Emory University and in 1996 founded Whosoever, the online magazine for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Christians. Um, I am also a United Church of Christ minister, um, licensed just this year, and I am the associate pastor at Garden of Grace United Church of Christ uh, here in Columbia, South Carolina. And of course, the best for last, um, my first book is coming out in September of 2008, Proof Faith. A Spiritual Survival Guide for Gay and Lesbian Christians, and the material that you're, you'll hear tonight is sort of the basis for that book, uh, but the book will have so much more, so uh, please buy it in September of 2008. <laughs> so some of the points that we're going to cover this evening. Why is spiritual self-defense necessary? How do we answer those who attack our faith? How can we learn to see our enemies as gifts? And how can we reveal our authentic self and neutralize all attacks? Just recently, a couple of years ago, I guess, um, our church was dedicating our new uh, land. We hadn't built our building yet, but we were dedicating the land and soon to be building our building. And there were protesters um, just up the road. We were in the woods, and there were two protesters standing by the side of the road holding their signs, you know, homosexuality is an abomination, God hates you, sodomy is sin, all of that stuff. And they were yelling, they were screaming and yelling, and we could hear them as we were trying to uh, have our dedication service. And when the service was open, over, we left, uh, and we had to walk by them to get out of the woods and to our cars. And, of course, they accosted us, they yelled at us, they told us that God hated us and that we were going to hell. What would be your reaction when something like if something like that ever happened to you, especially if you're it's a church service, it's not like it's a pride parade. What do you think you would have done? I would have ignored them probably. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, because because well, trying to um, engage them in a kind of discuss. I mean, they're not there to discuss anything anyway. True. And they're not going to be open to hearing anything, so it's better just to just to to walk on by. Well, it's interesting. We had uh, 
30, 40 people there at, at our dedication service, and there were a variety of reactions to them. Some of our church members actually did argue with them and came away very frustrated. <laughs> and finally, we dispersed everybody, and everybody got to their car, and I turned around, and I realized that to get to my car, I had to walk past these guys. It was an older gentleman and a younger gentleman. And the younger guy, I would have mistaken for like a crunchy granola peacenik type, except for the big, you know, sodomy of sin sign that he was holding. <laughs> and um, and I, had, I had this decision to make. I thought, well, well, what should I do? What should, should I say something to them? Should I ignore them? What, what's, what, what's my plan of action here? Because i got to walk by them to get to my car. And I decided to walk. I walked by them, and I said, have a good evening, gentlemen. God bless you. You would have thought that I had yelled insults at them. I mean, they went off on me. The older man started yelling, um, you're a false prophet, ma'am, leading your flock to hell. And uh, and I just, I didn't feel the need to yell back. It was the most curious experience because usually, I mean, a year or so before then, I'd have been like toe-to-toe with the guy, just giving as good as I could get. And But I just didn't feel that need, and I hope that by the end of this teleseminar you'll understand why I felt that way. So let me ask you a question. Could one person convince you to commit suicide? Just one person telling you, you're not worthy, you ought to, you ought to off yourself. Yes? No? No. No? What about the entire... Go ahead. What was that? I think I'm a little bit stronger than that. Okay, I hope so. <laughs> but what if the entire society was telling you that you were wrong, that you're no good, that God hates you, that you're not worthy of living? Suicide might be a little easier then, right? Yeah. You think? It's harder to, it's harder to ignore a message like that. Right. Well, in 1989, the U.S. government had a report that found that gay and lesbian youth are two to three times more likely to attempt suicide than other young people and may compromise up to 30% of completed youth suicides annually. I mean, that's just an amazing number. And the research has been disputed, and the numbers may be lower, but it's really not in dispute that stress, violence, lack of support, family problems, substance abuse, I mean, these are prevalent in our community because society doesn't accept us or support us. So these pressures, while they may lead to physical suicide, they often can convince us to commit spiritual suicide, to walk away from God. And it was Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard who wrote, no violent assaulter can murder an immortal spirit. Spiritually, suicide is the only possible death. And many of us in our community have committed this spiritual suicide because they believe they're unworthy of God's love. So learning the art of spiritual self-defense is necessary because it gives us a sense of self-worth. We, we understand that we're worthy of defense, and that worthiness within you is what I'm calling your authentic self, or as Stephen Pressfield in his book, The Legend of Bagger Vance, calls it, your authentic swing. Has anyone, has, has anyone read that book? No, but I, I saw the movie. You saw the movie? The movie doesn't do it justice. I'm telling you, I, I hate golf. I, I can't stand golf. But, but this book is so not about golf. It's really about finding that authentic swing, that authentic self. So I, I highly recommend the book. But it's this authenticity that each of us carries. That's where God resides in us. It's our inner core, our, the center of our strength, where we can feel and know God's presence in our lives. So when attacks come... We answer When we answer from this center, this authentic self, then all attacks against us will fail. So here are the goals of spiritual self-defense that we'll cover this evening on page two of the, of the workbook. 
is identify and develop tools needed to defend your spirit. Understand that you really already know how to answer these attacks because it's, it's in you. You just got to bring it out. Learning how to shift your focus from defense to self. Understanding that yourself is the authentic self where God resides in you. And knowing that your immortal spirit, your authentic self, is worthy and therefore worth defending. On page three, you, you see a couple of examples of, of the fun hate mail that I have received here at Whosoever. This is just a couple of, of cliched examples. And so I'm not going to read them to you since you guys uh, have got the booklet. Um, but let's look at these anti-gay cliches, stuff that you hear all the time. Um, do you guys have that in front of you? Yes. Okay. Um, in Lois's letter, what are some of these cliches that we've heard a million times? I love the sinners and hate the sin. Love the sinner, hate the sin, yeah. God did not create you gay. Uh, you can be delivered and healed and set free. God created man and woman. I was at a vigil recently when Barack Obama came through here and, and we were protesting that, that anti-gay singer that he had. One woman came over and she all she could say was, created man and woman. <laughs> Like, okay, <laughs> thank you. Um, I'm not being mean to you. Okay. <laughs> so why does it sound so mean? <laughs> love you, but. Yeah, I love you, but. You know, we hear that all the time. And then John's letter. John is, John's letter is my favorite. You're so going straight to hell. <laughs> Perverted misfit. He talks about choosing this abomination of a lifestyle. I mean, that's just putting all of the cliches right in one little tiny sentence fragment and promoting it. We want to promote it. So AIDS is a cure. So when you when you wrote, when you read those, how did that, how did that make you feel? I think I'm immune to it. <laughs> You're immune to that. To where you just you know it's it's you've heard it so many times you don't really it doesn't have any meaning anymore I guess right it just kind of bounces off of it you it doesn't have any uh, effect I should I should say yeah what did you guys um I wanted you to write a response to John did you guys get the book beforehand and have a chance to do that uh, I was reading I downloaded it last night and was <laughs> reading it while I was. Uh, I had my, taken my mother to a beauty shop appointment this afternoon, so I haven't really had the time to. Oh, okay. Just read it once. Well, just, just for me, I, th I think it's easier to dismiss John's email because it's it's coming out of ignorance, and you just mm -hmm. you know you can kind of ignore it. I found you know of the two, I think Lois is is harder to respond to mm -hmm. because part of it you you know is she well intentioned. You know, you can't talk so much of it up to ignorance. Yeah. So I think that soul is a, a big piece of it. But, you know, hers is, I think, harder to respond to. Yeah, because you're not sure if Lois would be teachable. Right. John is like what I call a hit and run. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't even know if his if his email was a real email, you know. And I get those a lot of just, you know, you're going to hell and calling me a few names. And, you know, even if I didn't want to respond, it bounce because they're not... That woman who yelled at us at the vigil, all the, all the cameramen dutifully mic'd her up, but she wouldn't give her name. So, you know, right. <laughs> so, so, so they'll, they'll make their comments, but they're not very bold about it, not very brave. But, you know, a long time ago, 
when I first started Whosoever, every time I'd open up a piece of mail, my heart would pound. You know, I'd get lightheaded, and then I'd get angry as I read all these words, and, and I would just just pound on the keyboard and just send it right back to them, you know, word for word. And then I read this really interesting passage in the Bible, First Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Gentleness and reverence. You're going to do that for John? <laughs> that would be tough. That would be tough. Because, you know, the last thing we receive from our attackers is gentleness and reverence. You know, hatred, vitriol, cruelty, threats, rudeness. Yeah, you know, we get all that. but So we have to answer all that with gentleness and reverence. But, you know, it took me a long time to understand why. Why we have to do that, and I hope that this teleseminar conveys to you why we should always respond to attacks, no matter how devastating, with gentleness and reverence, because this really is the only way to approach spiritual self-defense. Now, when I first wrote about the idea of spiritual self-defense, it was back in 1998, and I compared my approach to that of the martial art of Aikido. Now, in Aikido, there are no offensive moves. You can't attack anyone with Aikido. You can only react when someone is attacking you. It doesn't mean that Aikido is not a deadly martial art. You can kill somebody if they can continue to come at you because, you know, it is an art of self-defense. And uh, that does give you the tools to defend yourself to the death if necessary. I'm not recommending that you, you know, go out and challenge anyone to a battle to the death. But it, it, it really brings it home on just how seriously we have to take this art of spiritual self-defense. Self I mean, we have to take it seriously enough to know that there are attackers out there who wish to see us dead, not just spiritually but physically. And we have to learn how to defend ourselves no matter what because it is our very spiritual and physical and mental health that depends on this. Now, you know, when you learn any martial art, you have to concentrate on learning how to execute each move and position. Aikido, as with any martial art, can be very effective if you know all of those outward motions. But it becomes a way of life, a more effective mode of being, when you focus just as much attention or maybe even more on the inside, or what is known as the, the chi. It's the, it's the key part in, in Aikido. And then your chi can be the best defense are best defined as the essence, the spirit, the centralized energy that animates our very being. That's that authentic swing. And without chi, we can't attain a true balance between our inner world and the outer world. It was in the movie Karate Kid uh, that highlights this balance um, in the differences between how Mr. Miyagi trains Daniel and how the military-type karate guy trains his kids. Now, Miyagi teaches Daniel... Like these meaningless chores, like waxing his cars, you know, wax on, wax off, and painting his fence. You know, Daniel is learning the right moves, but he's also building his skill from the inside, finding that center, that chi. And so in one scene, Daniel's really upset. All the outward power and bravado is being displayed by all these other karate kids. And so he questions Miyagi on his methods. He says, he asks him, you know, did you ever get into fights when you were a kid? Miyagi says, oh, plenty. He says, yeah, but it wasn't like the problem I have, right? Well, Miyagi says, why? Fighting, fighting, same, same. Daniel says, yeah, but you knew karate. Miyagi says, someone always know more. You know, there, are times, there were times when you were scared, right? Miyagi says, he's always scared. Miyagi hates fighting. Daniel says, yeah, but you like karate. Miyagi says, so? So karate's fighting, you train to fight. Miyagi says, that's what you think? And Daniel ponders and says, no, 
Miyagi says, then why train? Daniel thinks about it a minute and says, so I won't have to fight. Miyagi laughs and says, Miyagi have hope for you. (laughs) (laughs) Why do we train? Why do we concern ourselves with spiritual self-defense? Is it so we can get out in the ring and show off our stuff? No, we train and we learn. We find that balance within ourselves for just one reason, so we don't have to fight. Now, when I went to seminary in 1998, I went with one purpose. I went to learn how to fight. Because when I put whosoever up out there... It invited all sorts of hate mail. It invited all sorts of people who were telling me that the Bible condemned me and that I was leading people astray, that false shepherd idea. And I wanted to learn everything I could about the history of Christianity, about Bible and theology, so I could have all the answers and respond to all these people who told me I couldn't be both a lesbian and a Christian. So at the end of my seminary career, we were required to write a paper integrating all of our experiences in school. And my dean told me it would be good if I could write about what brought me to seminary. What questions did I have when I arrived? And what answers do I have now that I was ending my seminary career? When I thought for a minute, I said, well, you know, I came here to learn how to answer those who told me I couldn't be both gay and Christian. And my dean asked, well, what's your answer? And I felt like Daniel at that moment. And I said that I don't have to answer them. I mean, what an amazing place to arrive at. All that training, spoiling for a fight, all that money. I thought about asking the seminary for my money back. (laughs) (laughs) But all of that training was done so I would never have to fight. What my training taught me was that it's not the outside where those arguments take place that should be my focus, but instead my focus should be inside where the arguments are settled once and for all. What my training taught me is that I had put the wrong emphasis on self-defense. Instead of defense, I needed to focus on self. So learning spiritual self-defense is necessary because when we learn it, we realize we don't have to fight. Our sense of self-worth and our assurance of God's presence in our lives means that we know that we need not prove ourselves right to anyone because we're already right with God, and that's the most important thing. Now, if you've ever learned a martial art, have any of you learned a martial art? Nope. Nope? All right. Well, the first thing they teach you are the outward moves. And interestingly, the first thing that they teach you is how to fall down, how to take a punch or a kick and not be injured. Now, the art of spiritual self-defense is much the same. First, we learn how to fall down without being injured. An attack may well knock us off our spiritual feet, but it ultimately does not injure us if we know how to fall down properly. So the next few few, uh, pages will teach us how to fall down elegantly. So we equip ourselves with these tools that we'll need when we're faced with an attack. We have to know how to handle those who yell at us at pride parades and church dedications, but we also have to know how to handle those who may be truly seeking dialogue with us. There may be a Lois out there who just hasn't been educated on how to speak to us yet, to use to not use words like lifestyle or whatever, um, which is driven by my income and not my sexual orientation. Thank you very much, and I'll be happy to change for any donations. <laughs> So, you know, there are ways to tell these people apart when you're having a religious discussion about GLBT issues. And I highly recommend that you go to a website called fairnessproject.org. And I think I'd put a, I might have put a link in the web sections, in the website section. 
and order Dr. Robert Miner's booklet called When You're Having a Religious Argument. This is material from this booklet, and it contains a lot more than we have time for here. Um, but if you get in and read it, I know it will, it will truly be a helpful uh, piece of material. All right, first off, then, on page 8, we're talking about the discussion. When you're in a religious discussion or you're having a religious argument, remember that it's all said before. The person who is talking to you is not going to say anything new. They're going to tell you about Leviticus. They're going to tell you about 1 Corinthians. They're going to tell you about Romans. They're going to tell you about Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> They're going to tell you stuff that has been said before. No one has said anything new to me ever before. And all the responses out there are equally available. Websites, books, Daniel Helminiak's book uh, on what the Bible says about homosexuality is a great one. Peter Gomes is a great one. Robin Scroggs is a great one. I mean, all of these books, everything is out there. Uh, study it, know it, learn it, live it, and you'll, you'll be ready. <laughs> and, and don't argue scriptures. Religious traditions or doctrines, no proof text war, because, you know, as Mr. Miyagi says, someone always know more. <laughs> so uh, you're going to find someone who's gonna, who can run circles around you with the Bible, and that just frustrates you. So don't even go there, because it always ends in frustration. Be clear that you personally disagree with anti-gay interpretations, doctrines, institutions, etc. And maintain a clear, consistent response. You don't have to start arguing if someone says... Um, Romans condemns homosexuality. I know people interpret the scripture that way, but I don't. But Romans 1 condemns homosexuality. Well, I know people interpret the scripture that way, but I don't. You're not playing in to what they're trying to to get. They're trying to hook you in. So just don't don't go there, especially if you know that this person is just trying to, to bait you, and they're really not looking for dialogue. Now, when you're engaged in a religious argument or discussion, you might want to keep these questions in mind and on um, personal healing. But before, but before we go to that, I just want to uh, talk about how when we get into arguments that upset us, I just want to encourage you to stop taking attacks personally. Because when someone comes at us and talks to us about homosexuality and their disapproval of it. It has nothing to do with us. Now, maybe something that we have said or even just our appearance, um, you know, in a discussion or in a room has sparked something in them, but their opposition to homosexuality has everything to do with them and not one thing to do with us. It's their stuff. So if... And so if we get upset when someone comes at us and says, you know, Romans 1 condemns homosexuality, and we get upset about that, it has nothing to do with them. It's all about our own internal homophobia that's still there. And we doubt. We go, well, maybe Romans 1 does condemn homosexuality, and we get scared or we get angry and we lash out. Well, that's our stuff. If you have stuff with someone else's stuff, that's your stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a huge insight. I mean, you know, what we're doing is responding when someone's pushing our buttons. Yeah. Recognize that if those are my buttons, you know, they're not, they can't make me feel one way or another. You know, 
I, I allow that. Right, right. That's your choice. Yeah. So when someone comes up to me and goes, homosexuality is an abomination before God, I go, thank you very much for your opinion. I usually throw it back at them, why do you feel this way? Yeah. Put them on the defensive instead of trying to be on the defensive myself. Uh, well, why the, why did they where their homophobia is coming from, I guess. Mhm. Mhm. And and does that but does that lead to does that lead to constructive conversations? Sometimes and sometimes not. Yeah. Yeah. What well, do you, when when it when it doesn't, do you find ways to extract yourself? <laughs> uh yeah, you just uh, you just don't argue with them. Basically, sometimes you just have to walk. Away. Sometimes you have to walk away. It's true. But um, uh, Philip Gully, who was one of the uh, authors who wrote um, "If Grace Is True," which is another excellent book that I that I highly recommend, um, he and his writing partner Jim Mulholland got attacked for this book because the premise of the book is God will save every person. You know, so it's it's sort of a universalism, and and people would come up the, up to them and yell at them. You know, apparently God's unconditional love for everyone is quite offensive to some people. And Philip Gully said during a, a seminar that I went to uh, where he was speaking, he said this woman came up and was just very angry about what they had written in this book. And he said, he said I, I realized as I was looking at her that all I could think of was what is this woman's pain. He was not taking it personally at all because he realized that where this woman was reacting from was her own pain, was her own fear about something. And and Gully was just the one who ended up having to take the brunt of this lady's tirade, but it didn't have anything to do with Philip Gully. It wasn't about him. She didn't know him from Adam's house cat. Right. You know, so, so when someone starts in on us, our first thought ought to be, what is their pain? What has hurt them so bad? What are they so afraid of that they have to lash out in that manner? And it and it immediately takes that anger away from you because you're like, wow, this isn't about me. What's up with her? <laughs> you know, so when someone upsets you, that's about you, though. When you get upset, that's your stuff. So examine your own pain when you get upset and wonder about somebody else's pain when they become upset. So as you're getting involved in these things, and, and these are some questions to, to start asking yourself. You know, why does this issue or this particular argument matter to me? What emotional need am I meeting by arguing about religion? See, this is all about you. What prevents me from walking away or ignoring this? You know, why do I stay in a religious community that might not agree with me and wants me to leave? Uh, why do I care about their beliefs, particularly if I disagree? And when do I know that it's time to leave? Now, this is where you examine where your buttons are getting pushed. You know, what's happening to us during an argument or attack? And we have to sort of learn to meditate on what provokes that resentment and use that resentment as a reminder that that's our stuff and that we need to go back and start working on us because it doesn't have anything to do with the person that angered us. It's all about us. Any questions after that? You guys there? Yeah, we're here. We're okay. Good. <laughs> All right. So, looking at the warning signs. Now, this one, this one's my favorite because I've. This is where I have stumbled myself on the warning signs that you're getting hooked into an argument. It's a useless argument and not dialogue, and you might want to get out. 
getting hooked into an argument. Remember, if I have stuff with someone else's stuff, my stuff, okay? And you get caught up in the need to win the argument. I have got to win. I've got to make sure that this person knows that I am right. So you ask yourself, why is that important to me? And never be afraid to walk away because you don't have to answer anyone for your beliefs. And I got pulled into this. Oh, about a year or so ago, I stayed with my oldest sister and her husband, and he's virulently anti-gay. And he got his hooks in me one night, and I, I mean, a downward spiral. I, I, I did everything, all the warning signs, all the red flags were going up. And I argued with this man and ended up becoming very angry and saying things that I regretted. <laughs> but I, I ignored the warning signs. And it was all about my stuff. You know, I, I didn't stop and take the time and think, gee, what's up with him? Um, you know, I just, I went for it. So so sometimes, even though you know all the tools, you'll still, you'll, you'll still get pulled in. And it's so hard with family members. You know, some complete stranger on the street, I don't care what he thinks. You know, but I wanted, I wanted my brother-in-law to, to know that I was right. <laughs> You know, so it's, it's it's so much harder with family members, and it's so much easier to get pulled in with family members because these are people who actually care what they think about you, and you don't want them to disagree with you or think badly of you. So these are the outward moves. But honestly, you can't use them effectively if you first haven't found that chi or that spiritual center that grounds you in every attack. Now, this is the process of discovering your buttons and removing them if you're upset by an attack. You need to go back and find out why that attack affected you like it did. Remember, if you have stuff with someone else's stuff, that's your stuff. And that's what you need to work through. And once you do that, that attack doesn't affect you ever again. Marianne Williamson in her book, um, A Return to Love, talks a lot about that being right, about wanting to be right. Um, This is a quote from her book. It can be very hard to let go of your perception of someone's guilt when you know by every standard of ethics, morality, or integrity you're right to find fault with them. But the Course in Miracles asks, do you prefer to be right or happy? If you're judging another, you're wrong even if you're right. There may have been many times when I have had a very hard time giving up my judgments of someone mentally protesting, but I'm right. I feel as though giving up my judgment amounted to condoning their behavior. I felt, well, somebody's got to uphold principle in this world. If we just forgive things all the time, then all standards of excellence will disintegrate. She continues, but God doesn't need us to police the universe. Shaking our finger at someone doesn't help them change. If anything, our perception of someone's guilt only keeps them stuck in it. When we're shaking a finger at someone, figuratively or literally, we're not more apt to correct their wrongful behavior. Treating someone with compassion and forgiveness is much more likely to elicit a healed response. People are less likely to be defensive and more likely to be open to correction. I spent years as an angry left-winger before I realized that an angry generation can't bring peace. Everything we do is infused with the energy with which we do it. As Gandhi said, we must be the change. What the ego doesn't want us to be is that the guns we need to get rid of first are the guns in our own heads. Now, that's the phrase I want you to take with you tonight is, do you prefer to be right or happy? 
A therapist friend told me about a couple that she had counseled once. The husband was determined to be right, and he was so wrapped up in being right, he couldn't hear his wife's pain. He couldn't hear her concern. And so after a few frustrating sessions, my therapist friend told the man, you know, you have a choice. You can be right, or you can be in relationship. And I think that's the key to spiritual self-defense. We have to give up our need to be right if we ever want to be in relationship. My brother-in-law is married to my oldest sister, and she agrees with my brother-in-law. She doesn't feel that I'm doing God's will for my life by being a lesbian. And we strongly disagree on this issue, but we've decided that we'd rather be in relationship with one another. But we don't talk about it. We enjoy our time together because we know that I can't say anything that's going to change her mind. She can't say anything that's going to change my mind. So we can choose to constantly fight about it when we're together, or we can simply enjoy one another's company and have a relationship. So when we give up this need to be right, we can find true peace and happiness and often true relationship with those who may not agree with us on the issue of homosexuality. So if we want to see a change in our opponent, we first have to be the change that we wish to see. This is how we answer in a gentle and reverent manner. If we want to be treated gently and reverently, then we've got to give that as a response. We have to choose relationship over being right. Yeah? I, I guess I'm, I, as I'm listening to this, to me it, it feels, it's sort of like, you know, just stay in the closet and, you know, I mean, part of that feels like there's, I guess that, you know, if, if we want relationship, then do do we really need to deny who we are or or how we live? I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm all about relationship, and, and but, you know, I, I don't know. Chris, do you, do you kind of feel that same, did you have a similar thought to that? I uh, have learned with my own family that certain members that we we just can't talk about it mm-hmm. that we uh it's just it's like Candace says it's relationship or are we a fight all the time and so we just it's just not discussed anymore uh i i can't i've done all i can to help them get to where they need to be but nothing that i think to say or do are just who i am doesn't seem to work it's very frustrating, but uh, like Candace says, uh, it, it comes to a point where you just have to give it up. You realize you've done all you can, and, and the rest is up to them, I guess. And, Glenn, I don't see it as, as staying in the closet because um, I'm not silent about my life when I'm with my sister, um, you know, or when, I, when I'm with my family. Uh, my partner comes to Thanksgiving and Christmas. You know, they know I'm gay. And they know I have no intention of of not being gay, um, you know. But but we've but we've arrived at a place where the relationship is more important, as Chris is saying. That 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 we realize that that we are a family, and if we are going to to love one another and, and be in relationship with one another, that there's just some areas we can't talk about. And it's not you know it's not even so much on homosexuality either. I can't talk politics to most of my family. <laughs> <laughs> because it's because it's going to be a fight, you know. So they are, you know, almost all of them are, you know. So 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 going home for holidays 
can be a stressful event. So, so you know, we've all decided, hey, let's not talk about that stuff and let's just have a good time. <laughs> yeah, it's different. Yeah, you can't talk about. But it, but it's not but it's not putting it back in a closet. You know, they they know that I'm a bleeding heart liberal, and I know that all fundamentalist Republicans. <laughs> and and you know, sometimes we get our jabs in, but. Uh, but more often than not, we just enjoy one another. And I think that you know, for, for those who really want dialogue with us, um, I think you can reach a point like that where you can where you can be in dialogue and in relationship with those who may not agree with us 100% on homosexuality, but they find other things of value in a relationship with us. You know, so so we have to we have to be open to that. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. Okay. So we need to, to learn how to speak in ways that, that that we can be heard instead of our words causing barriers to go up. You know, we need to, to learn how to truly listen to our opponents and open our hearts to them and, and, and be in that relationship. And, you know, we shouldn't be quick to pull out those sharp weapons of sarcasm and anger or fear and loathing. Xena, the warrior princess, is renowned for her fighting skills, and she was always reluctant to teach them to her gentle son, Gabrielle. She says, you know, don't confuse defending yourself with a weapon. Defend your, no, don't confuse defending yourself with using a weapon. When you pull a sword, you have to be ready to kill. People are too quick to go for their swords. It should always be a last resort. And Gabrielle says, I don't want to learn to kill. I want to learn to survive. And Zena says, all right, well, then the rules of survival, number one, if you can run, run. Number two, if you can't run, surrender, then run. Number three, if you're outnumbered, let them fight each other while you run. Number four, Gabrielle says, wait, more running? No, four is where you talk your way out of it. And I know you can do that. It's wisdom before weapons, Gabrielle. The moment you pick up a weapon, you become a target. Wisdom before weapons. That's Zena's defense theory, where words take precedence. But, you know, words can be just as deadly as swords, so we should always hesitate before using our words in deadly ways as weapons. And we have to be mindful that our words really do have the great power to heal or to harm. Buddhist monk Jack Cornfield tells the story of a Sufi master who's come to this village and he's asked to heal a child and the villagers crowd around him. And he says a few simple prayers and so, tells the people, now he will be well. And someone who didn't believe in all that spiritual stuff said, what do you mean? You say a few words and it's supposed to get better? The master approached the man and said, what do you mean? You know nothing of this. You're an ignorant fool. The man is enraged, turns red, his body starts to vibrate, and he's about to strike out at the master. And the master says, see, if a word or two can turn you red and fill you with energy and anger, why shouldn't a few other words have the power to heal? So our words can create healing or suffering. It's up to us to realize this power and begin to choose our words carefully, even if the words that have come to us are not words that were gentle, but instead meant to hurt us or put us down or denigrate us. So the words we say in reply must always be gentle and full of reverence. But as Zena pointed out, sometimes running away is the best way to remove ourselves from situations, and that may be the very best thing we can do sometimes to defend ourselves spiritually. <clears throat> Another form of survival in our spiritual lives when we come under attack is to change our view about our opponent. Now, we often see our opponents as people to defeat. That's what, it, that's what it means. But as Marianne Williamson has said, we want to be right. We want to win the argument. We want to see that our attackers go down in a fiery defeat. But instead of seeing our opponents as an enemy to overcome, 
Instead, we ought to let their words and actions lead us right back to ourselves so we can deal with our stuff. Because our enemies are there to remind us of our stuff. Our friends aren't going to point all this stuff out. <laughs> you know, they don't want to hurt our feelings. Enemies don't care. They're going, to, they're going to point that out. And so, you know, God puts infuriating people in my path, not to test my faith, but to remind me that I have yet to master myself. Because in the, in the legend of Bagger Vance, Pressfield writes that if we view our opponents in this way, then we realize the game is not against the foe, but against ourselves. That little self that we possess, the yammering, fearful, ever-resistant self that freezes, chokes, tops, nobbles, shanks, skulls, dusts, flubs. That's the self that we must defeat. So our attackers are a constant reminder that we have yet to conquer that little yammering self that wants to respond to attacks with the same vehemence that they are delivered. And so our first reaction to our attackers should not be a sweaty palm and sharp tongue. We've learned the power of words to heal or harm. We should always be mindful to choose healing and edifying words and deliver them in a gentle and reverent manner. And we can only do this when we learn how to receive words of attack without immediately reacting in anger or frustration. But we have to be grateful for our opponents because they really do teach us a lot. And on page 13, we talk about lessons from the enemy. And these are lessons that I've learned from a lot of my opponents. Self-control. Boy, I really want to go off on some people. <laughs> some people, you know, they know how to push your buttons better than others. And uh, and usually it's family members more than more than anything, you know, because they know your buttons. They grew up with you. And so you, you, you really sort of have to learn how to control yourself and how to how to start asking those those questions. Why is this important to me? Why do I feel I need to win this argument? You know, the, the self-control helps you to step back from from an argument that that may have the potential to become a blow up like I had with my with my brother-in-law and 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 really step back and go, "Okay, is this a situation where I can have dialogue or is this a situation where I'm using Zena's self-defense theory and I'm out of here?" So self-control, something we can learn from an enemy. What stuff we still need to sort out because the enemy's going to press some fresh button and we're going to go, whoa, I didn't realize I hadn't worked that out yet. <laughs> Romans 1 was my button for a long, long time before I really sat down and worked out that that uh, um, that piece of scripture for myself and came to a sense of peace with Romans 1. Because someone would say, Romans 1 says, oh, I would be off. How to treat our enemies. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That really is how we should treat our enemies. Because if we want to be treated, we, we, we teach people how to treat us. You know, if if we want to be treated in a certain way, that's how we should treat other people. So if I want my enemy to speak to me in a calm voice, well, I continue to speak to them in a calm voice, even if they're yelling at me. So how to treat your enemies is really something that, that you can learn. Seeing God in our opponent, that was a tough one for me, too. I had a an Internet uh, enemy on a, a Yahoo message board several years ago. And I swear I could not see God in that man. I, I thought he was the devil straight from hell. 
because he was merciless. He was one of those people that, you know, you try, to, you try to connect with him on some human or emotional level, and he would ridicule you. I mean, it really got to the point where I was getting my feelings hurt. <laughs> but I, I had no way to see God in this opponent. And I'm telling you, I, I got called to, to do a panel on same-gender marriage here in South Carolina before our amendment was approved last year. And I sat on this panel, and and, and it was... A parade of attacks. You know, people got up to the microphone, and um, no one said anything new. Sodom and Gomorrah, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Uh, I love the sinner, I hate the sin. Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. They all said the same thing. And it was everything that I had said to this Internet attacker. So I had my arguments. The Internet attacker was one of the best gifts from God because he helped me hone my answers. He had helped me hone my skills. And I had, I, they'd come up, I'd knock them down. They'd come up, I'd knock them down. They'd come up, I'd knock them down. <laughs> because this guy had really done me a favor. And I thought, oh, that was God. That was God on the Internet putting everything together for me. And so I actually went back and thanked him. And he attacked me again. <laughs> he couldn't even take my thanks, but <laughs> but I was really grateful for him. I really was. Um, enemies can teach us that contradictions are nothing to fear, and this was something that I learned very solidly from my from my brother-in-law. Because one of the things he said during our argument was, "We both can't be right. One of us must be wrong." Because I think the scriptures say that it's wrong, and you think the scriptures say that it's right. One of us has to be wrong. And I told him, how do you know we're not both right? We see through a mirror darkly. We don't have all the answers. And things that we see as contradictions, even things that look like direct contradictions may be exactly what God intends. How do we know? That blew his mind. <laughs> there are so many contradictions in Scripture anyway. There are. It, read one paragraph and the next paragraph will uh, directly contradict the paragraph before, so it's, it, that's nothing new. Right. In Proverbs, it, it's one line in Proverbs says, um, uh, do not answer a fool according to his folly. The very next line is, answer a fool according to his folly. Okay. <laughs> so why can't we both be right? But you see, there it is. Somebody's got to be right. And so my brother-in-law and I... For simplicity, I guess, and without having to think things through, I guess. Say that again? It's it's the need, I guess, for simplicity and to have basic rules without having to think things through, you know, without having to think about situations. Just this rule applies to this, this, and this, and this, and you don't have to think about, you know, the right. white and the gray. Right. And, yeah, and my brother-in-law is a very black-and-white thinker. It's 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 wrong or it's right. It's this or it's that. Yeah, and and I think that's, well, that's the lure of fundamentalism is that, that all, of the, all of your questions are answered. You know that the Bible is an answer book, and 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 you know anything that does contradict, it's it's easily harmonized, I guess. Um, enemies can teach us to laugh at ourselves, and I laughed at myself a lot with my little internet buddy 
because you know he'd get me. Some, sometimes he'd he'd work me right into a theological corner, and I have to go. I have to just stop and go. Okay, he got me there. <laughs> you know, as Mr. Miyagi says, somebody always know more. So I went into the proof texting and and got into a futile argument, and and he bested me. And I just you know at that point you got to laugh at yourself, or else or else you'll give up. You'll cry or do something. <laughs> Or figure all this God stuff is just a bunch of crap, and and I'm you know I'm out of here. No more no more faith for me. And our final lesson from the enemy is our experience of God trumps all arguments. You know, there's a tradition in uh, the tradition of uh, tradition, scripture, reason, and experience. It's Wesley's four-legged stool. Yeah, yeah, the quadrilateral. There you go. And then, then there's a three-legged stool that's just reason, tradition, and scripture. Experience is right out the door. <laughs> but my argument is is that experience trumps everything. Because without experience of God, you don't get tradition. Without experience of God, no one would have written any scriptures because that's what the scriptures are, is a testament to everyone's experience with God. And you wouldn't have uh, reason because, you know, you wouldn't have scripture and tradition to, to even talk about to reason. So experience of God is what trumps it all. And if we have an experience of God, if our experience of God tells us that we are okay with God, as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender people, well, then whatever, people can say whatever they want. Because my experience of God trumps all of that. Is that something you want, you folks have experienced? I actually went to a, um, a day-long workshop um, offered by the opposition, so to speak. Ah. The Transforming Congregations um, movement had a workshop here in Delaware about um, sexual ethics. And they spent some time talking about uh, the quadrilateral, uh, because we're Methodist in, in our background. And right. it was interesting to hear their take on it, because, you know, they, it, you know, they accept that those four pieces are there. The, they have a problem with how we prioritize it. Mm-hmm. Because for us, we put experience as being the most important. And for them, that's, that's kind of um, flipping it the way it, it was supposed to be, which was scripture would be first. Tradition mm-hmm. and um, experience all should support the scripture, not, script, not, not the other way around. Right. They were really likening it to, you know, we're become, becoming kind of... Um, uh, so egocentric and, and putting ourselves higher than God because we think our experience is more important than what Scripture and the Church tells us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I sat back and I was like, "Oh, that's a really interesting way to look at the whole quadrilateral and, and how they think that we're perverting it." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason I think that experience is, is the most important is because it, it was—it's it, how we got Scripture. And 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 really, I guess it comes down to your how you how you view the authority of the Bible. Is that, that for me, the Bible is a continuation of a conversation with God, and that and that we go to the Scriptures and we and we contend with other people's experiences of God. You know, I go into the Old Testament and I and I encounter people who whose worldview and experiences gave them a warmongering God, 
a god that tells them to to you know kill babies and stuff like that and sacrifice their own son and that's a god i don't understand you know but i have to go into their experience and i have to and i have to 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 try to find some ways to understand their experience and understand how they viewed god and my experience of god is different from that and so i have to figure out how to reconcile okay are we are we still worshiping the same god but but i really do believe that that we have to rely on our own experience of god because you know faith faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen and faith is something that we it's a knowledge it's not a you know, and experience is something that is a knowledge. Because you can tell me, um, you can tell me what blue cheese tastes like. But until I experience blue cheese, I really don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, so so you can you can tell me, you know, your experience of God. And you, you know, I, there are some people who experience God as uh, as some as a, as a force that would tell them to go and kill abortion doctors. Not sure I really want to know that God, but they say that's their experience of God. So what am I supposed to do with that? Go kill an abortion doctor to figure out if that's really what God wants? No, I don't really think I want to experience that God. You know, so I, I just think that that we often we often will give up our own experience of God because someone else says we ought to. Right. Well, my response back to to them was that that I don't worship scripture or mm-hmm. the Bible. You know, it's 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 just a path to to get to an experience of God, and and I'm not I'm not denying how important scripture is. But right. It's only it's a it's an end a means to an end kind of thing. You know, it's like it's like you know, am I in love with my partner or in the love letter that he wrote me? Well, the love letter, you know, has much of my partner in it, but it is not my partner. Mm-hmm. You know, the love letter is, you know, ethereal. It's, it's, and it's just not what is important. Those who, yeah, those who insist on, on, you know, that we have to, everything has to agree with the Bible, to me, are, are proclaiming that God is dead. You know, that, that God hasn't said anything more past revelation. Right. You know, and as a United Church of Christ minister, I believe God is still speaking. <laughs> you know, and that and that God is still revealing, and and there is still even more light um, to be shed, and and it may actually contradict something that was written uh, by someone else experiencing God centuries ago. You know, and I and I don't think that that negates the Bible in any way, um, but actually it, it it makes it even even a more rich and full experience when we go into the Scripture. Does that make sense? Yes, very much so. Okay. So in the legend of Bagger Vance, Bagger tells Juna, love your opponents. And when I say love, I don't mean hand them the match. I mean contend with them to the death, the way a lion battles a bear, without mercy but with infinite respect. Never belittle your opponent. Rather, build him up, for on the plane of the self there can be no distinction between your being and his. Be grateful for your opponent's excellence. Applaud their brilliance, for the greatness of the hero is measured by that of his adversaries. So never belittle our opponent. Never think less of them. Always build them up. Speak words of edification, of love. 
you know, we may think our opponents do some despicable things, and sometimes they do, but we should never think less of them and not be afraid to contend with them, but offer them that infinite respect, even if you never get anything back. And as we're seeking an effective way to spiritually defend ourselves, we may wonder why our opponents are so determined to argue with us and seek us to change. And I think there are several reasons. I think the first is fear, that they're afraid that if God accepts homosexuality, then their faith will collapse. You know, one, it's like a Jenga tower. You know, you take out that that one piece and it's all shot. It all comes tumbling down. So I think there's a real fear there that, that what they have believed in may not be correct if something like this contradicts it. And I also think that there's genuine concern. And you and, and you almost hear it in, in Lois's letter. Um, you know, the evangelicals truly believe that those who don't practice the faith the way they do are going to go to hell. And this for them is a real concern. You know, so while we may see their actions or hear their words as hateful or rude, they're genuinely attempting to save us from the pit of hell. This is what my brother-in-law said to me. I am afraid that you will go to hell. And so he's very concerned about saving someone that he loves from an eternity in hell. So so it, sometimes it is a very genuine concern. There's a new book out called Asphalt Jesus that's written by a man named Eric Elness. You guys heard of Crosswalk America? No. No, these guys took a Easter last year. They took a 2,500-mile walk from Phoenix, Arizona to Washington, D.C. for progressive Christian values. And and it was just fascinating what they what they found. Um, but Elness talks about people play the odds, you know. They believe that if there's even a slim chance that the people who don't believe a certain way will go to hell, then even the most compassionate people can do really horrible things to one another. And this is what he says in the book. He says, what I mean is that if you honestly believe that there's a reasonable chance that someone you love is going to land in hell for eternity because he or she doesn't believe in Jesus at all or in the same way you do, then if you have any compassion at all, what would you do? Try to convert that person, Megan responded. Yes, by hook or by crook. After all, even if you've gotten people to have faith in Jesus and they get to heaven because of it, they'll thank you for it, won't they? We should do everything, we should be doing everything, anything and everything in our power to get them into heaven if we have any compassion at all. Why do you think people were tortured into making confessions of Christian faith during the Middle Ages? People thought that it was more compassionate to create Christians through torture than to let them die as non-Christians and be condemned to hell. Really, saving people from eternal damnation should be our highest priority in life, according to this view. So most of the people that we meet, they've got that view. And so they think they're being compassionate, and they think they're expressing genuine concern when all we hear is is hate. And I think the biggest reason that we are attacked is misogyny, is the hatred of women. A fundamentalist worldview is that men are in charge and women are subservient. So because men were created in God's image, women were created from men, and are below men, they're part of that creation that men are supposed to dominate, and gay men are seen as no better than women. And Mel White, the founder of Soul Force, in an interview with whosoever recently talked about this, he warned that we have to take the Christian right seriously because they want to see us eliminated. And they believe that we are such a threat to the nation because because we violate God's chain of command. 
And so Mel said, they see very clearly that the whole universe falls apart if order isn't kept. God created the order from God to Jesus, from Jesus to men, from men to their wives, from wives to their children. So men play a critical role in bridging the gap between the deity and the family. And the human male is the person that God uses to bring the truth to the world and the family. If the man quits acting like a man and doesn't take the man's responsibility, that's what they call gays, then the structure falls apart. So they've got to save this male role. Otherwise, God's blessing will be taken from our nation. Um, you know, if we get gay rights, well, then that's, that's proof that God is, uh, has turned God's back on, on uh, the U.S., and it's all, it all works from there. So end misogyny, and you'll end homophobia as well, which, which is a big task, unfortunately. So when we understand where they're coming from, we can begin to see that they're reacting to us because of their stuff. You know, this really is all their stuff, and it truly has nothing to do with us. It's their fear, it's their pain, it's their personal prejudices that make them act this way. And we have to have compassion on them, but it doesn't mean that we excuse or accept their behavior. Because, you know, often religion is a crutch, it's an, addict, it's an addiction for some of these people. But we can have compassion for them, but we show no mercy, as Pressfield defines it. Never let them think that they have a valid point, because they don't. You know, if we choose to engage with them, we must call them on their fear and their misinformation and their prejudices. Mercy in a biblical sense is to alleviate someone's suffering, but Pressfield's mercy is a little different. Having mercy would be to let them off the hook. So don't let them believe their points are valid or the only ones to be considered. We have about 15 minutes really left, and, um, and I really did want to get to our, our Jesus prayer exercise. Are there any questions up to now? Nope, thank you. Okay. All right. Until we really know that authentic swing, our authentic self, we're not really ready to enter this area, this arena of spiritual self-defense. We'll be beaten down if we do. All the, the feelings, the fear, that frustration, hopelessness, anger, stepping in unprepared um, will be a bad thing. So you have inside of you something that makes you unique from everyone else. You have that authentic swing. We know it innately. We've probably felt it before, but we haven't been able to recapture it. And the best way that I've found to uncover this authentic swing is through a dedicated practice of meditation. Now, some people resist this idea because they believe it's either a waste of time sitting around with your eyes closed for 20 minutes or that it's an Eastern practice and isn't necessarily Christian. But, you know... The Bible does tell us to be still and know that I am God. So being still is nothing more than a practice of meditation. Bibliography, I do have a a address of a website that's dedicated to the practice of Christian meditation. And the meditation we're about to do has roots in centuries of Christian prayer and meditation. Are are either of you uh, familiar with the Jesus Prayer? No. I am. I actually did a paper on it when I was in... um... Ah! When you were where? When I was doing my undergraduate work. Okay. Well, you probably know more about this than me. Then this is all familiar with you. So the Jesus yeah, Prayer. That was a long time ago. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Jesus Prayer, um, it started, uh, where did I write that down? I mean, it's old. It's uh, Here it is. In about the 400s, Bishop Diaticus was the first um, of the spiritual writers to write about repeating remembrance of Jesus' name. And the full prayer itself was first found in the 6th century in a book called The Life of Abba Philemon. So um, so 
so this is this is really a, a meditation deeply, deeply rooted um, in Christian tradition. And the other important form about thing about the Jesus prayer is that it is a breath prayer. That means we synchronize the words with our breathing. Traditionally, the first part of the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, is said or thought with the in-breath. And then we exhale the second part, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the prayer has two parts, the address and the supplication. In the first part, we address Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. The second part of the prayer is the supplication, our request to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So what I want us to do for the next few minutes here is to take these two parts as our model and design our own prayer. Now, the power of the Jesus prayer is that it's meant to bring us to that central place inside where we touch the divine nature in all of us, where our authentic swing resides. So what I want you to do first is think about the address. How do you address God? Is God the Almighty, my Creator, Father, Mother? What comes to mind when you first think of God? Don't ponder that too long. Just let the words come up. Next, think about the supplication. What we're searching for here is the prayer that is so deep inside of you that you pray it unconsciously. We're trying to bring up to the surface this this prayer that's so deep in you that really it prays you. This is your authentic swing, the very ground of your being. So I want you to take a few minutes and think on this. Think of an address. How would you address God? And then think on your supplication. And, and don't dismiss your first thought when you're thinking about the supplication because sometimes that's, that's your most genuine response, especially if, you, if your first response you go, oh, no, that's probably it. Because <laughs> sometimes we really resist uh, our authentic swing when we first think of it. So I'm just going to give you guys a, a couple of minutes here to think about an address and a supplication and what might be your version of the Jesus prayer. Amen. Amen. When I did this exercise in my spiritual director's course, um, I was shocked at what came up for me because, you know, I've spent most of my life running from calls to service for God. (laughs) I avoided doing whosoever for the longest time. I thought, you know, it would be a great idea. Maybe somebody will do it. It would be a great idea. Maybe somebody will do it. (laughs) Then I went, oh, you're asking me to do it. Okay. I would call to ordination. I tried to make pastor over the place, and I just didn't want to do it. I've worked my whole life to duck God's call. And the prayer that came up for me was, Dear God, how may I serve? And it blew me away. I'm like, no, that can't be it. But that's it. There's my authentic swing in a nutshell. Service to God and God's children. With that as your authentic swing, oh my goodness. I mean, what can shake you if you know that your authentic swing is service? Get out there and serve. How, who, who can stop you from that? How, how can any harmful words penetrate that? Because I know I'm called to serve. 
Would you like to share your authentic swing? You don't have to. I'm just asking. What I jotted down was, Jesus, everlasting friend, help me be who you created me to be. Mm. Very good. Very good. Mm-hmm. I oh. said, uh, creator, give me wisdom. I don't know. That seems like a thing. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Yeah, you know, and and sometimes the the prayer can be used to to still be searching. You know, that if you that if you sit with it long enough, you know, I mean, I invite you to take it past the call and sit with it and really and really think about um, that prayer that's so deep in you. You know. Um, Chris, you want you want wisdom, you know. So that's what you're that's what you're that's what you're praying for. That's your authentic swing is to is to be wise in the world. So that's that's wonderful. Very good. What's funny is I'm sitting here looking at what I wrote. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of, I'm kind of surprised that the supplication part is not to do anything. Mm-hmm. It's to be. Yeah. And I that I'm kind of sitting here going, wow, that's <laughs> that's, uh, that's an insight. For me, at least. Are you a doer? Yes. <laughs> I have my little to-do list, and I like to accomplish things. I'm very task-oriented, and yet that's not what my supplication is. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very good. God is telling you to go back in, go in for a little bit. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, and and that's the, um, you know, that's that's where your your strength lies for you. Is that you know and. And you know what? People who do, because I, I, I know a lot of doers, they avoid going in a lot of times because they're so busy doing. And that's how you get burned out, man. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you keep doing and doing and doing without going in and, and, and reconnecting with God on that on that plane, you know, and, and really being with God in that authentic way, then... Um, yeah, you can you can burn yourself out. Well, that's all the material that I had to cover. Is are there any questions? Anything you want to discuss? I think burning out. You touched on something uh, there, uh, which sort of uh, ties in with all this. Really, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure that I'm there where I can, you know. Uh, I, I do quite a bit of stepping back because I just feel like I'm burning, I guess, burning out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not sure how you, if there's any way to to stop that other than just st- stepping back, I guess, from time to time. Uh, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with stepping back. Yeah. You know, you, you have to be... You have to be strong and centered. You know, if 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 an Aikido master goes out and he's not uh, strong and centered, if he's not standing there like a rock, you know, just sweeping people past as they as they come by, um, he'll be defeated. And so often that's what happens in our community. We we go out and we're unprepared for for the attacks that we might meet, and and we feel defeated. Uh, so many of us walk away from the church. So many of us walk away from God because because we because we refuse to go in like that. We refuse to step back and and try to reconnect. So I think that's a that's a that's a good thing. 
Any other comments or questions? So when is the next conference? <laughs> the one about the, the text, is that what you're going to do next, the text? Um, yeah, I want to do uh, Bible and homosexuality next, and I'm hoping... I'm sorry? Dealing with the text. Basically. Dealing with the text, yeah. Um, yeah, I want to do that one next. Um, and and I'm thinking that it might be best if we uh, do that after um, after the holidays. Yeah, so I'm I'm looking toward January um, to try to put something together for that. But yeah, that's that would be the that would be the next one. And like I say, we'll we'll make it a little bit more affordable so more people can get in, and hopefully more people will show up. <laughs> well, I think that one will. We'll draw more interest too. Oh, I think so too. the the most popular The most popular page on whosoever is our Bible and homosexuality page. It's what people, it's what people struggle with the most. They really do. And they keep looking for new insights. Oh yeah. So you can't talk enough about it. I don't guess. No, you really can't. And and when I when I first started whosoever, I really wanted to move beyond it. I really wanted to to try to help people get over the the big Bible speed bump. Um, yeah, I but I think people, you know, even even me, I, I'll go back and read Bible and homosexuality books or um, Justin Cannon's uh, excellent exegesis at truthsetsfree.net. You know, it's just it still holds my attention. You know, I guess we all need reassurance. I guess um, you know that that we are on the right path and that and that, that God is supporting us through the scriptures. So. So yes, it is a very important topic and, and one that we will certainly cover. And that one may be a two-parter because that's hard to do in yeah. 90 minutes. It may even be more than that, just depending on the interest and, and how it goes. But I was thinking Old Testament and then New Testament. So. Right. Huh. But there's there's such value though in that because sure. we're asking, you know, our opponents to go to go back to Scripture again and. Mm-hmm to um, interact with it and, and to experience it anew. And I think we have to practice what we preach. Sure. Uh, you know, we need to keep going back. Um, if we believe God is you know, in the progressive revelation business, we all have so much more that we need to learn and to experience. And, you know, we only do that by going back and, you know, reliving it again. Well, and you, and you can't read the Bible once and put it down. Right. You know, the 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 Bible is fresh every time you go back to it. There's I, I I can read the same old passage over and over again. I had to give a sermon on the prodigal son. That was what came up in the lectionary a couple of months back. I went, oh man, I have preached this sermon <laughs> so many times. I'm so tired of the prodigal son. What am I going to do? And I preached it from the perspective of the lawyer who asked the question that prompted the parable. I'd, I'd never, I'd never considered that before. Well, what did the lawyer think, you know, about that story, and why did, what prompted his question? So, you know, I mean, there's just, there's all sorts of ways to, to when you pick the Bible up. One of my um, seminary professors said, if you read the Bible and you come away with more answers than questions, you haven't read the Bible. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, so every time you pick up the Bible, it's it's it can be a fresh insight, and I and I really feel for those people who pick up the Bible and read the same thing, and never hear anything new, because I think they're really missing, they're really missing God's voice in in many important ways. 
And too often the people who are quoting those scriptures to us actually haven't read them. Oh, true. They're just parroting what they've been told. True. Um, There's the the Southern Baptist credo of the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. But really it's the pastor said the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. (laughs) Right. Right, because I I don't ever remember actually reading any scripture uh, coming up as a Southern Baptist. I just remember hearing a lot of it from the pulpit. I have a, a short quote from the legend of Bagger Vance as a, as a closing prayer, if we're, if we're ready to close. I'm ready. Okay. Forget all else, Juna, but remember this. You are never alone. You have your caddy. You have me. More devoted than a mother, more faithful than a lover. I stand by your side always. I will never abandon you. No sin, no lapse, no crime, however heinous, can make me desert you, nor yield you up, nor yield up to you any less than my ultimate fidelity and love. Who walks his path beside me, feels my hand upon him always. No effort he makes is wasted, nor unseen, unguided by me. Therefore, Juno, rest in me. Enter the field like a warrior, purged of ego, firm in discipline. Seeking no reward save the stroke itself. Give the shot to me. I am yourself, the ground of your being, your authentic swing. Amen.